Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. Again, I'll be talking today with Donovan Chow, uh, who's the author of Exploiting Africa, the Influence of Maoist China in Algeria, Ghana, and Tanzania. Donovan, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Heath. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have read the book and, and um, uh, to, to talk to you today. Before we get to the book, uh, maybe you could talk just a little bit about yourself, uh, where you are now, and, and uh, what some of your background is. Sure, sure. I'm uh, currently an associate professor of political science at California State University, San Bernardino, and I I have been studying and researching Africa, but particularly China and Africa, for a little over a decade now. In fact, I started started the research when I was in England as a PhD student at the University of Reading, which is just west of London, and it really, this research is really a culmination of of what I did many many years ago, and continue to to follow very closely. And I care about I care about what what goes on in Africa, and I care about Asia. And so a lot of my research and even teaching focuses on politics in Africa, politics in Asia, but really the intersection of the two. Now, how did you come to to publish this with Naval Institute Press? This this wasn't a publisher that I was familiar with, but they've designed and and published uh, your great book. So tell us, you know, just briefly about the publisher and, and how you came to work with them. Sure, sure. It's uh, I, in fact, I was initially surprised that there was some interest on the part of the Naval Institute Press, and I, I, I'm more familiar with with the Naval Institute Naval Institutes monthly publication proceedings and and so really I was exploring different publishers and I, a contact a personal contact of mine mentioned that actually the Naval Institute might be interested in in my research on China and Africa not simply because it's related to China and the Naval Institute has actually published quite a bit on China's not surprisingly naval activities but it seemed like they were interested in exploring some things beyond 
simply Chinese naval strategy. And so it was really through a personal contact, I must say, that I was introduced to one of the senior editors there. And it really was, I was, I was really quite pleased working with the Naval Institute Press and their quite quite a professional group of people and and I, I actually I value the the press as well because one of my my mentors when I was an undergraduate student many many years ago in the 1960s he won an essay contest for the Naval Institute and for proceedings sorry and and so I, I'm quite familiar with the Naval Institute in general but in addition to the to the press I've value the types of things that they produce some of it is obviously more nautical and maritime history naval history military history but i thought it was a good fit because my my work is really a work of history even though i'm i myself am, am a political scientist yeah and yeah I, I couldn't agree more they they've really um um i think reflected uh, your hard work and your scholarship so well so so I think it's a press that, that I at least will uh, keep my eye out for a little bit uh, more for their, you know, the, some of the work that you've described and and others in the, the political science realm. So let's let's talk about the book. Um, you have a provocative title for for the book. Um, to, to frame this as exploitation suggests certain things. You didn't choose this title by accident. So what was your intention in naming the book as you did? And you know, maybe how does this connect to your central argument of writing the book? Sure, sure, and it's a it's an interesting and a difficult question. In fact, because this is, as you know, he sometimes when when the production of the book nears its completion, there's a there's a back and forth that goes on between the editorial staff and the author. And so I I was actually put pushing for a title along the lines of using the word meddling as opposed as, as opposed to exploiting. And so the I was convinced, I will I'll say by the publishers mm-hmm. that this was this was the best title. And it, it so it works for me in the sense that it it is provocative and it is really it, it frames the discussion in such a way that makes one think about what it what was China doing in Africa in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and so I quite I quite like the subtitle, the whole the whole influ- the influence that that word, the influence of of China, and so ex- exploiting Africa. I won't say it was my my first choice, but I I think it worked. I think it worked. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's such an interesting backstory, and I think uh, many authors probably have similar uh, stories about how, how uh, these aspects of the book that we probably don't think very much for the years <laughs> and years and years that we're writing end up, you know, being so so important. And and it's mm-hmm. well, it's, it's good that uh, um, the the change in title doesn't change the the essential meaning of the book. Um, I wanted to ask you, as a sort of a casual observer might assume about studying communist China. Uh, uh, might be that the historical documents would be difficult to, to get your, your hands on. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you conducted your research. You, you had just mentioned that you're a political scientist by training, but that you view much of this work as a history. So what was the method that you used to, to write your book? Sure, sure. Most of it was essentially historical archival research. And I mentioned that I con- studied at the University of Reading in the United Kingdom, and I was there, and then I actually moved back to the United States and did research 
in Washington, D.C., of all places, out of the Library of Congress. And the Library of Congress, as you know, is uh, the world's largest public library, and their historical works, archival works on things such as the Peking Review, basically a lot of these communist Chinese publications, they quite quite extensive and exhaustive, and so I spent a lot of time doing essentially doing archival research and this was back in the day it doesn't I shouldn't even say that, but back in the day a decade ago when I was actually using microfiche and I don't mm-hmm. even know I don't know if some of the, the younger our younger colleagues nowadays I don't even know if they know what that is, but mm-hmm. it was it was quite a bit of fun going through various archival materials from communist China as well as certain archival materials from from Africa. And I also did a little bit of follow-up research a few years ago out of Northwestern University. There's a wonderful collection called the Hertzkowitz Collection. It's an Africana collection in fact, the world's largest Africana collection outside in the, actually in the world, and it happens to be based at the university, uh, sorry, Northwestern University, over there in Evanston, Illinois. Yeah, the, and and it, uh, I think the the rich details are, are a testament to this method that you've used in the book. So, why these three countries, Algeria, Ghana, and and Tanzania? Um, they're geographically representative, different parts of the continent. But what else made each uh, compelling to you? Were they particularly compelling to, to Maoist China, or do they serve other, some other purpose? Uh, walk us through, real briefly, Algeria, Ghana, and Tanzania, who serve as the, the focus of the book. Sure, sure. There were a couple different considerations. First of all was the, the strategic consideration of, of China at the time and their approach to Africa essentially followed the path that I in the three case studies starting in North, North Africa and Algeria was was a country at the what well, it was a the Algerian nationalist movement at the time in the 1950s was on the radar of the communist Chinese leadership and so uh, Algeria being a very very important country strategically today but at the time was was actually the heart of the French the French colonial policy in Africa and so it, to me it made sense to look at this at the Chinese in Algeria turning to West Africa in in Ghana that was also a very unique relationship West Africa was was a quite a hotbed at the time of revolutionary national liberation movements and as it turned out and, and and as you may have read in the book the the leader Kwame Nkrumah he became quite close and quite fond of communist China and so that that naturally became the the focal point in West Africa and then turning to eastern greater eastern Africa or East Africa quite Quite simply, Tanzania today, I would argue, and even back then, was considered a very, very strategically important country to China, and the, the amount of resources that China devoted into a project maybe we'll talk more about in a little bit, but the Tanzania-Zambia Railway, that mm-hmm. that just speaks for itself. And so principally strategic considerations, but also 
looking at the chronology that it flowed nicely and not to say that the Chinese weren't active elsewhere. Certainly they were in Somalia, they were in Angola, Mozambique. They were, they were in, in, in many different parts of the continent. But to me, these were quite representative of the way in which, that is to say, the nature and the character of what China was trying to. Now, I'm going to focus on, on Ghana for, for mainly personal reasons that, that I've mentioned to you, my, my own fascination with, with Ghana. Um, so tell us about why Ghana may have fascinated Chairman Mao and, and about China's uh, somewhat bumpy relationship with Ghana. Sure, sure. I think there was actually mutual fascination on the part of the Chinese as well as the Ghanaians with one another. And a lot of it actually had to do with both both of the country's leaders. And so Kwame Nkrumah and Mao Zedong, as you mentioned, Chairman Mao, they had visions of the world. And some of those visions, in fact, were congruent. Some of them were not. But one that really struck both Mao and Nkrumah was a vision of changing the African continent. And so, as you may know, Kwame Nkrumah, he had a vision. That vision really has come into fruition today in the form of the intergovernmental organization, the African Union. But he was really, he was really the person behind a an Africa that was independent and united and could therefore act in international politics in such ways that would have more influence than if individual nation states acted. And so Mao was fascinated and the communist leadership was fascinated with this individual, essentially the leader, and that was part of the problem. The focus was so much on this individual and his vision, and he was quite charismatic, obviously, as was Mao. And so there was also quite a bit of influence from Marxism-Leninism that that influenced Nkrumah. And so Mao was was someone that he also was interested in and his writings, and he was a prolific writer, as, as many most people know. Mao Zedong not only led communist China to to defeat the nationalists in 1949, establishing China, but also really had a vision for China, which in many respects it still holds today in the sense that he viewed China as desiring a, a rightful place in the world and having the type of influence that China should have, according to, to Mao's views. And so Nkrumah also emulated Mao in the, in the sense that he wrote a handbook on revolutionary warfare, guerrilla warfare. And that, that was, that was interesting to, to find at the, at the Library of Congress as well as at the Herskovitz Library. There were both, co- there were copies of this this actually a reprint of it of what he wrote and is essentially copying what Mao wrote on guerrilla warfare and so there was mutual admiration there was also some similar views of uh, in terms of strategic views of the world and I think those naturally aligned it didn't it didn't quite work out because 
Kwame Nkrumah, he he maybe didn't he over overlooked some of the the domestic considerations. He was so concerned with helping these revolutionary movements outside of his country that he he didn't really take take care of business at home. And the Chinese they hinted at that. They hinted at some policy changes that that Nkrumah might consider and unfortunately for him he did not consider them until it was too late and so that i think i hope that explains a little bit about that that particular set of chapters that case study of the chinese in africa chinese in ghana and ghana is really quite a unique country as as you know in the sense that it it really plays an out outsized role in African politics, given its geographic size and population. And so the Chinese, they, they also recognize that. They recognize that, that Ghana might be an interesting place to, to lay some roots. And even though the relationship was severed for a time, as I spell out in my book today, the relationship is 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 one of, of quite is quite close mutual respect, admiration. And what's interesting, I'll note, Heath, that if you look at the official history of the Chinese in Ghana on the Chinese embassy website in Accra, one of the last times I looked, in fact, this whole period of time is is sort of left out. That is Hmm. the Maoist period of influence and how how China was supporting revolutionary movements in Africa through Ghana, through Ghana. And so that's, that's interesting. It's not something that the Chinese would like to advertise today since they're so active in, in many other respects, but that's, this is part of a history. And it's one of the reasons why I was quite happy that, that I was able to include that case study in, in the book. And I hope, not to necessarily expose some dirty laundry, but this is just part of the history. We all we all have histories, and it's important to understand this is a part of what China did in Africa, and in, in particular in Ghana. Right, and and so what what drew or, or what are some of the differences between what drew China to to Ghana in in West Africa versus what what drew it to uh, Tanzania, uh, thousands of miles away? Um, what was what was the difference? Was that was the pull largely the same, or were there some peculiar aspects to um, uh, the the role that China could play in Tanzania that that um, separated in some ways? It's it's a great question, Heath. And I'll start by just focusing the listeners' attention to geography. Geography is is quite important to China, and their understanding of Africa in a strategic sense. They they understand and, and study geography and history. And so one of the major considerations for the Chinese interest in Tanzania was was quite simply because Tanzania is along the Indian Ocean. And so it's in Africa, one says that Tanzania is in Eastern Africa. But looking at the Indian Ocean, Tanzania along with Kenya and Somalia and Mozambique and, and some of the insular island nations of Africa, they're in the Western Indian Ocean. And so considering 
long-term interests, the Chinese long-term interests, economic interests, as well as some other strategic considerations, it was important for China to have a solid foothold along the coastline of eastern Africa, or in other words, what the western Indian Ocean, because at some point in time, the Chinese and the, and the communist leadership and even Mao, who really understood the importance of economic development, he, the Chinese knew that they might need to have access to, for example, a usable port, a, a port and ha- have some friendly relations with countries along the coast in order to, to develop economic commercial ties into the interior of Africa. And a lot of what we see today, if I could just make a reference to the recent trip of the Chinese premier almost over 50 years later after the premier that I reference in my book, Zhou Enlai, his visit of 10 African countries, just recently last week, Premier Li Keqiang visited four African countries and they included Ethiopia, Nigeria, Angola, and then Kenya. And so even though he didn't visit some of the countries I mentioned in my book, it really shows that Chinese understand what is strategically important in terms of location, but in terms of centers of of political influence and even commercial and strategic interest influence. So during this time period, and and, uh, I will want to make, make clear, um, that you're writing a very of a specific time period. I don't know if we made, so made that clear at the start, but you're writing of a, a, a specific um, set of years. What was the movement between these countries as and China was was um, and and how did it take place? Are we are we talking mainly of you know exchanges of of diplomats or or was was the movement between these countries also involving other parts of uh, the country, students or or what what's the nature of the um, sort of the the people exchange that went on during this time period. Sure, sure. There were there was, it wasn't on the t- on a, a massive scale. So I'm I'm glad you also also made reference to the the time period that I examined in the book, 1955 to 1976. There there wasn't a massive exodus, if you will, of Chinese going to Africa or vice versa, and that was given the nature of international transportation and international lines of communication at the time. So there were what the Chinese began doing in the 50s they sent journalists and they sent and they sent some cultural and in quasi diplomatic troops to explore Africa and to present Chinese culture, but also to report on what was going on in Africa, in these countries, back to China. And so what there was is an interesting, I'll say just a parallel, I won't say correlation, but there's an interesting parallel. Wherever there were journalists from the, the Chinese government news agency, the New China News Agency, or now called Xinhua, wherever they went, Later on, that's where China developed diplomatic relations because China did not have diplomatic relations with with many of the the newly emerging African countries because because China, as as you know, he that 
China after 1949 wasn't internationally recognized as the legitimate representative of China in international politics. In fact, that was the, that was being that label was being held by the Republic of China on Taiwan. So that was part of the reason, and I would and I argue in the book that that was really a secondary reason why the Chinese were in Africa. But that that's that those are one of the ways that was one of the ways in which China developed ties, sending in journalists, cultural troops. Eventually, eventually, the Chinese began to invite Africans to China to study. And I don't go into that in great detail. That's an interesting subject in itself. These Africans that were in China in the 60s and 70s and some of the works that I came across uh, written by Africans who had had spent some time in China during that period of time, they they weren't necessarily favorable of China along the lines of how Africans today who go to China, they have much more favorable views and I'll speak just a quick aside to an individual I met when I was in Kenya several years ago. He was a Tanzanian military officer, and we were talking. I was telling him about the research I was doing. We were sitting resort side in Mombasa, enjoying ourselves outside, and we were talking about China. And then he mentioned how he studied. He spent a year in China, and he was quite. He had quite favorable views of Chinese society and culture and the like. And to me, that was, that was interesting to hear that the influence and the time and the energy and the effort that the Chinese put in so long ago in a place like Tanzania, that, that has, that is beginning to have some payoffs. And that leads to an interesting, uh, an interesting view of, of China and how China views the world. And, in the sense that China views things on a different scale. I haven't really written about it. I probably should, but it, it's, I, I call it the China scale. I call it the China scale, and China views things not in, in terms of time, not in terms of five years, ten years, but more along the lines of 20 years, 50, 100 years. And that is a different way of viewing the world and international politics. And so... I, I try to hint at some of this in the book. I try to hint at this. This was just the initial period of time that China spent time in Africa, and it, it was really a commitment for the long term. Yeah, and, and I, I guess I guess that really does uh, beg a question. You've been you've been also hinting at this um, throughout much of what you've said, which is. Um, you know, the continuity till today, um, you know, in, in so many ways, we, we think of the relationship of, of China to the world as so, so very different now. The, the uh, ruling party has, has, has changed in some fundamental way that it permits it to participate in, in world events in a way that it didn't 50 odd years ago. Um, so, so it does beg the question: Is is the involvement today a, a continuation, or is it something very different? Is it motivated by the same ideas that that Mao had, or or is the the new regime newer regimes um, pursuing a, a, a different strategy? It's a it's a great question, Heath, and my 
My argument is that there is more continuity than change. Certainly, the China of the 21st century quite different than the China of the mid-20th century. The ideological rhetoric of Mao and Maoism isn't prominent, although there are strains of it still within communist China and within China today and within the communist party today. But fundamentally, I, I argue, and I, I hope the reader might get a sense of this from my book, that the con- there is continuity in the, in the approach, the strategic approach in the term, in terms of the types of objectives that China has today, which is essentially to become a economically strong and prosperous and socially unified country and have influence in the world. Those are the same goals that China had in the mid 20th century. And, and, and today, certainly the, one could say the toolkit or the tool basket of China is much bigger, much more money to contribute and to Africa compared to in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. But I, I believe that the, the fundamental nature of the Chinese in Africa is, is very much the same. And I, in, in an odd way, in fact, the communist leaders in China today – even Premier Li Keqiang, who just re- he just returned from Kenya, signing a massive rail infrastructure deal with many of the leaders in East Africa. He just returned to China. In many respects, the references to history and, and shared bonds of the past, that, in fact, reaffirms, at least to me, and my analysis is that, that there is more continuity. And the Chinese view that history as important and, and fundamental to moving forward into the 21st century. And so while, again, while the Chinese have so many more resources and and means to influence and not in a, necessarily in a negative way, but to influence Africa than in the in the Maoist period, there is, in my analysis, more con- continuity. It's um, I enjoyed the the, the book just so much. Uh, this is an area that that interests me, and um, I've read about it from some different angles, but but uh, not from the angle that you've chosen in in the book. And so, I can commend the book, recommend the book uh, uh, for those that are interested in in either um, China or or various countries of Africa, but also in the um, uh, in international relations in general. I think it's just such a, uh, an interesting book. Um, Tadava, what's, what's up next for you? You've, you've hinted again at some, some uh, possible new directions, but what is, what is on your, your agenda now? Are you continuing in this vein, or is there something else that we can expect from you? I appreciate it. I appreciate the question very much because currently I'm on a quarter-long sabbatical, so I really should be figuring this out. But I, <laughs> right. my heart is certainly—I've said it in, my, in so many of my classes, and I say it to my African friends in different parts of the continent. My heart is really in Africa, and so my my longer-term research plans are to focus more on Africa than necessarily. China, but that there's so much more, in my opinion, that needs to be explored both historically, but also in terms of uh, more contemporary research in terms of the Chinese. And so I'm, uh, 
I'm interested in, for example, looking at how some of these leaders in in the, the early African independence leaders, how did they view China? And so uh, I have some aspirations, at least, to explore that. And but also in a more contemporary vein, looking at some of the unique ways that China may be influencing Africa, for example, in through the provision of information and communications technology and essentially how Africa might be brought into the 21st century cyberspace world. How is China contributing to that? And so those are some just some tentative research, longer term research plans, but it really, a lot of my, my passion really lies in Africa and I just, it's so diverse, so interesting and, and, and you, as we see in, in today's current affairs is so important to, to understand. And, and so that's, that's sort of where I'm leaning, but I am open to other avenues of research that, downrange, so to speak, but uh, that's that's a little bit of what I, I think I have in store in the future. But I, I really yeah. appreciate your your kind words about my book, and, I, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's really, as you know, doing this type of research and writing is a labor of love, but this is, I have so much of my heart in, in this research, and it means a lot to me that someone like yourself enjoyed it and I'm very happy that we're able to talk about it in my book. Yeah. Well, I can I can only hope that uh some additional people listen to you talk about the book and and go out and read the book. Um I I think that it's uh worthy of adding to everyone's uh, summer reading list. Um Donovan's book is uh titled Exploiting Africa: The Influence of Maoist China in Algeria, Ghana, and Tanzania. As we mentioned at the start, it's published by Naval Institute Press this year, available at their website, I'm sure, as well as Amazon. Donovan, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Heath. I I enjoyed our conversation. 